I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode of the Gators kickoff fall camp this past week. We'll discuss a piece in the Orlando Sentinel written by Edgar Thompson about Graham Mertz. Uh, we'll do toss-up section. Will's got a new series coming out about toss-ups, about the games we see as toss-ups this coming season. And, of course, we have to talk about conference realignment that's been all over the sport changing the entire structure of the sport will how's it going man going all right it's nice you, you have a new microphone so uh now we can actually do an episode we skipped an episode last week because uh you know it turns out the te- the technical support for read and reaction just as you and me and uh <laughs> kind of limits what we can do sometimes when things go wrong but uh the good news is it wasn't live so we didn't have you croaking on a uh on a on a laptop <laughs> on a laptop that's mic. why we don't go live that's why we don't go live there's, yeah that there's some, live stu- there's some live stuff coming up this season, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, so it's good to have you back, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to be back. Good to be back. Let's jump in here to fall camp. The Gators are back, back on the field. Uh, we saw them practice in the swamp this past week, Will. Uh, all kinds of storylines heading into camp. We'll cover the quarterbacks in the next section uh, in terms of Graham Mertz. But kicking it off, Max Brown making some noise. A lot of rumors about him being QB number two going into the, this practice here. Well, how you feeling about Max Brown? I mean, I feel great about Max Brown from the standpoint of everybody else they've got on the roster. I mean, that, that, I wrote an article, Why Not Max Brown, earlier this year at Read and Reaction. You can go check that out if you want to. But the point was is that he had a really high completion percentage in high school. He's a guy who's mobile. He His reason for dropping in the recruiting rankings was not arm strength. It was that he didn't get to play until his sophomore year and that, or until his junior year and that he was playing in Oklahoma against competition that was a little bit less than what most other people do. And this was somebody that I think Napier had a eye on when he was at Louisiana and then was able to convince him to come to Florida. And he's one of those guys that you look at and say, the underlying stats here are really, really good. So baseline for Brown, he could be really bad, right? Because you come out there, you're not ready. You lose your confidence, you throw a couple picks and all of a sudden things go in the wrong direction. But I think the ceiling for Brown is pretty high. Whereas I think it's sort of the opposite for Mertz. I think the ceiling is relatively high or I'm sorry, the the floor is relatively high because you know, he's not going to be a complete disaster. But the floor, or but the ceiling is also relatively low. Like we don't, I don't expect him to become just a superstar or anything like that. I think it's going to be a game manager, somebody who could manage things, that sort of stuff. And so I'm really, I'm really excited to see what Brown can do. Now, obviously, I don't want anybody to get injured in order to, for to see what Brown's doing. So if he doesn't win the job, then obviously I hope we don't see him because if he didn't win the job, he wasn't the best player, and we want somebody else to be, we want the best player to be playing. But it is interesting to me. We saw what Jack Miller could do a little bit last year in the game against Oregon State. We also saw it during the spring game last year we saw it the spring game this year right that there wasn't a lot of a lot of movement between what he did in the spring game last year and the spring game this year but brown didn't get a whole lot of snaps in the spring game this past year obviously baseball had something to do with that so the fact that he seems to have seems to have moved him to the third spot suggests two things one is that anybody who looked at jack miller and said yeah it's probably not good enough okay well now you've got more competition you've got somebody in front of him but then the other thing is that it says is that is that Brown put in a lot of work, even though he was on the baseball team, coming off of that season, knowing the offense, being able to come in in the fall, really compete, and then jump in front of him. And so is there an opportunity for him to jump maybe even further as the season wears on? Um, I think there's going to be some opportunities there, right? I think for, for most of us, we don't suspect that this is going to be a smooth ride at the quarterback position for Florida this year. And so if Brown is poised there at number two, he's going to get a shot, especially – 
maybe not in the game against Utah, but when you get into that second game and the fourth game against lesser opponents, you know, the backup quarterback's going to get a lot of snaps just because Napier's going to want to make sure in case something happens, he's got somebody ready. And so if Brown's getting those snaps, I think, again, we're looking at somebody who may be very, very low floor, very, very high upside, a lot of variability. But in some ways, when you're rebuilding a program, you got to know who you, you got to know what you have. And so figuring that out with Brown in real game situations, I think will be a, an effective thing. Whereas I think with Miller, we kind of already know what we got. Well, I, I hate that the Oregon State game gets held up as Miller's debut shot. His, any real type of analysis is held against Miller for that game because I think that game was not really a uh, – I don't think that was a great representation of what he can potentially bring to the table. However, I think he falls into the Mertz camp of not sure the ceiling's that high, but I think he might have at least some kind of floor to offer to at least make the offense somewhat stable. I mean, maybe, but see, that's the thing is like I already mentioned the spring game two years ago and then this most recent spring game. Have we seen anything that makes us go? Yeah, that's special. I think what we've seen is a guy who's relatively late getting the ball out, doesn't necessarily make decisions right on right, right when he should. I think the ball gets the ball gets out when it when it gets out, it's late, which gives the opposition an opportunity to pick it off. He's usually thrown to the right spot, but it's usually late. And so. When you got a guy out there who's late, you hope to see that develop over time. In the spring game last year, the Oregon State game, and then the spring game this year, it was sort of the same story the whole way through. So it's it's not just that one game against Oregon State, though certainly, you know, again, if, if you expect or think you're going to need a quarterback who can separate you from other people – you know, Florida had some opportunities in that game against Oregon State, and there were some throws that Miller missed in that game against Oregon State. And that doesn't mean that Florida would have won the game, but the game could have been a lot closer. The complexion of the game could have been very different had he been able to take that step forward. You know, if Kyle Trask had come in and had played in the game against Oregon State, I think Florida probably would have would have acquitted That's itself a tough comparison to... there for Jack Miller. I, well, I think, I'm just saying, like, Jack you know. Miller, you're, you're naming one of the all-time best uh, guys to step in. In, yeah, a, but, in a in a tough spot like that, but with Miller, no, 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 no. is that you're, you're, is that you're, you're a first? Missing. Hold on, hold on. Is that a is it an inexperienced problem with Miller, or is it a Miller problem? That, that's it, that's what I guess I'm trying to define it, here. It's a Miller problem because you know, right? When when Kyle Trask came in against Kentucky, we knew, right? And it took him a while, right? Like there was some inconsistency there, and there was some there were some growing pains that first year in 2019. But you knew. And then it was a question of could he take a step forward from that 2019 performance in 2020, and he did. So if Jack Miller had come in and had, and we could just see it, right? And you could say, I just, I know, like I saw him make plays that other quarterbacks don't make. I saw him anticipate guys coming open. I saw him read a defense in a way that typical college quarterbacks don't. Even if he missed the throw, even if the throw is a little bit late, even if you know, he wound up throwing into double coverage when he got pressured or something like that. You could say, okay, I see things to build on. The problem is, is that two spring games now and the game against Oregon State, I don't see anything that jumps off the tape at me that says, yeah, here's something to build on. And in that Kentucky game, obviously, um, obviously Trask leads them back. But, you know, when Trask came in for Franks and we were behind to Kentucky in that game, I don't think a lot of people were all overjoyed that Franks got hurt. 
and 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 that Trask was in there. I certainly didn't expect it to be the the dawning of a quarterback, a dominant quarterback at Florida, and it turned out that it was. So that's that's my only point is that when someone comes in the game and the offense feels different, you could tell. And I'd make the same argument for Anthony Richardson over Emory Jones. Like it wasn't so much that Emory Jones was terrible, though there were times that he was. It was that the minute Anthony Richardson came into the game, it felt different. And even last year with all the inconsistencies for Anthony Richardson, there were still times where it felt different. Like you felt like at any point there was something special in there. I think we're going to see that with Indianapolis in a couple of years. Now, had he stayed another year, I think maybe we get the Trask 2020 performance out of Richardson this year, but he didn't. And so now that's the question you got to ask with Miller is, is there a jump in Jack Miller from the Oregon state and the two spring practices to next year? And, and again, if he got passed by Max Brown, I think the the answer is no, right? Cause it means that everything we've seen in those games is what the coaches are seeing in practice, which doesn't mean he's a terrible quarterback. It just means that, you know, if you're looking at an organization that really needs more than a game manager, then Miller isn't going to be that guy. And, and, you know, and Brown has an opportunity to maybe be more than that. And so that's why I'd be excited that he's. Yeah, I'm not, not going to die well. on a hill about Jack Miller. I just think that that's awfully, uh, that's an awfully small sample size to, to write off a guy on there. Well, I, I would, start. I would agree with you. I would agree with you if his high school numbers indicated he could be more right. His high school completion percentage total 56.7, his senior year, 59.1. He averaged 9.6 yards per attempt in his entire career, but 8.4 his senior year, it actually went down from 10.8, then to 8.6, then to 9.5, then to 8.4. So he got less efficient in high school as the years went on. And his completion percentage didn't really move very much. It went from 58 to 53 to 55 to 59. So what he was in high school is what we've seen in college. And that's the thing that I think we need to start analyzing when we start looking at these guys. So Brown completed 72% of his passes in high school, averaged 12.4 yards per attempt. So it's just different in terms of what they did in high school. And that's why I say that his, that his ceiling is a whole lot different. And, and for is those who don't complete... follow statistics that close, Will, that you see those numbers trans translate at the college level the completion percentage numbers and the yards per attempt numbers if you see a guy with like 73 percent completion and he completes like six yards a pass then that's bad because all he's doing is throwing little screen passes Mm -hmm. but if you know if you're completing 12 yards per attempt yeah that's like in the joe burrow range now it's not joe burrow because burrow did it for like four straight years in high school but it's in that burrow range which i think and i think the numbers indicate is predictive of someone who's going to be very very good so you know you start looking at miller and you go look he's he's you don't want to ignore your eyes or the statistics. Like I would give him a much longer rope if he had Brown's high school pedigree or at least high school statistical profile coming in in that one Oregon state game. But the fact that the Oregon state game and the couple of spring games just support exactly what I expected to see makes me go, all right, it's what I expected to see. It's good to have him back there in case you have an injury, but are we really that much better than we were a few years ago when we had um, Treon Harris as a backup for Will Greer? Like, it's not like Harris was was awful, but he wasn't fantastic, and there were times when he was awful. And I think you know the reality is that's kind of what we'll probably end up seeing from Miller if he gets significant playing time. All right, let's move on to the offensive front here. Uh, Lindell Hudson, the transfer from FIU has missed a few practices to start fall camp. Will. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, thankfully the, the, the 
on three had an article about him being in a in a car accident so thankfully he's okay though it does say he suffered a concussion obviously that's something you got to be concerned about when you're talking about offensive linemen and in football that's that's you know concussions are 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 something you got to watch out for and something that can recur if you don't take enough time off in between them, how severe it was, all that sort of stuff are things that are open questions right now. I think as it pertains to the team, you got to start talking about who's going to actually play, right? Cause you look at the offensive line, you got, you got Hudson who's a transfer from Florida Atlantic, but didn't wasn't here in the spring. So was going to need all the reps he could get in fall. You got Damian George, who's presumably the starter at right tackle, but you know, George is somebody who's transferring in from Alabama. You got Mazuka, who's got the the shoulder injury who, who came in the transfer guard from, uh, from Baylor. You got Cam Waits, who was someone that they thought they were going to rely on. Who's had an Achilles injury. Probably won't be back till the middle of the season. You, you got, uh, um, Goodwin, the the transfer from Kentucky, who's decided to transfer back closer to home. Obviously, we want him to be close to his mom. His, his mom was diagnosed with cancer, so we want him to be close to her. At the same time, that leaves a hole, too. So you start talking about, like, when you, when you talk about offensive line, you really talk about, you know, wanting seven, eight, nine guys you can rely on because you know you're going to get a couple of guys rolled up on, a couple of ankle injuries, you know, a, a guy who who just, you know, in the heat, especially early on, is going to need somebody to roll in and help him. Um, you're going to get somebody who who tears a bicep or hurts a shoulder or something like that. You're going to need a sixth guy, a seventh guy maybe, and maybe even an eighth depending on what's going on. And so Hudson, hopefully that's not going to impact him. I mean, hopefully by the time everything starts, he'll be okay, but it is reps right? It's reps for a guy who hasn't been in the system. And now that means that you've sort of by default because Goodwin's gone because Hudson is now injured, you're running with George and Barber at tackle. And what happens if in the first quarter against Utah, one of those guys gets rolled up on and all of a sudden you got to bring in Hudson or you got to bring in uh, William Harad, you got to bring in Jordan Herman. You know, now you've got guys at tackle who don't have any real sec snaps who are also playing on the road in Salt Lake city against Utah in a hostile environment. And it gets kind of dicey. So I think Hudson was always sort of insurance at that tackle spot and that insurance should still be there, but but it is a concern to me that he's not getting snaps because, you know, offensive line's all about continuity, and that's one thing Florida does not have at all on the offensive line this year is the only guys they got coming back are Barber played a bunch last year and Eglikin played a bunch last year. Everything else is a complete is a complete revamp. And so, you know, if you get an injury to, say, Barber, well, now the whole offensive line, Sands, Eglikin is a revamp, and, uh, you know, that's something that I think, especially on the road, when you're going to start talking about, you know, silent counts and having to blast off the ball and facing a big time power five team to start with, um, you know, that's something you got to take into consideration. You have some new players on the roster as well that are, are participating in their first fall camp here. Uh, some of these guys were around during the spring. We saw a lot of the, we heard talked a lot about Andy Jean and Aiden Mizell, but Eugene Wilson has reported to Gainesville. In addition, you have offensive tackle Caden Jones, defensive lineman Gavin Hill, and corner Dijon Johnson out of Tampa. Will, which one of these first-year guys do you expect to have potentially have an impact on this roster this year? I mean, I would like to say um, Eugene Wilson, just because having a guy out there in the slot who can be a game changer would be a big problem for people. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually probably Dijon Johnson. I, I think, I think the defensive backs, um, Devin Moore coming back is, is going to be a big deal. Obviously he was injured last year across from Jason Marshall. You got Jaden Hill moving into the inside. You got RJ Moten to help out the safeties, but then you've got Miguel Mitchell and Kamari Wilson at safety, relatively young guys at safety. And so, 
you know, a guy like Dijon Johnson who can who can slide in there and provide a lot of help to the defensive backs, maybe even Jakeem Jackson there at, at defensive back as well. But of the guys you named, having a guy like Dijon Johnson and you start thinking about corner and safety, those tend to be positions, especially corner, those tend to be positions where guys can come in right away and help and play real minutes because they're using their physical skills, especially given the defense that Austin Armstrong is going to run. It's going to be a lot of bump and run, going to be a lot of one-on-one. You're going to be on an island. And when it's one-on-one, it's just go out there and win the physical battle, right? It's it's not um, – you don't have to worry about where do you sink into the zone. You don't have to worry about you know your assignment. You're not sitting there looking for, oh, what happens if they do this or this or this. It's, nah, there's a guy across from me on the outside. I jam him at the line of scrimmage, make sure he doesn't get inside of me. If it's on the outside, I press him towards the, towards the edge to make the quarterback make it difficult throw and then if there's an opportunity to high point the ball you go up and you get it and you become a receiver at that point those are all things that a cornerback has been taught to do since he was like five years old and so to me the easiest answer is probably Eugene Wilson because we're hungry for one of these wide receivers to step up but the one where I think um, the impact can be felt earliest on is is Dijon Johnson at, at the corner position the Ohio State flip uh, from Wharton High School here in Tampa uh, hey Will did you get to see any of the – did you see the format of what they did with the open practice this past weekend? I thought that was really cool. It looked like they had the players and the coaches out in the field meeting the fans. And I think that's a great way. You're still in your you're in your second year if you're Billy Napier. Just a great way to try to connect with some of the fan base. Obviously, you're going to attract mostly local, but, you know, you got to assume people drove in from probably an hour or two away to catch something like that. I think that's a good – a good way to open up early on uh, in fall practice here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of the local, the local guys talk about NIL or the beat writers talk about NIL and they do it in a way that's a little bit, um, you know, it's not, it's ruining the game, those sorts of things, but this is a way NIL is helping the game, right? Because a lot of the things that they're allowing or a lot of the access that they're allowing are to people who are participating in NIL programs. I know there was a big picture of Saban going around this weekend where they had this giant line at Alabama of all these people going to get his autograph, but you were only allowed to get in line if you were one of the NIL supporters. And so that's one of the ways that they're incentivizing people to sign up to support their teams. And, and, you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder, but it is an additional benefit that we haven't gotten prior to the NIL era. And this is something where, you know, they had an event for NIL people at some point along the line during this weekend with the open practice. And look, it looked like a spring game practice out there, right? I mean, and there aren't people flying down there for spring games most of the time. I've done it once, but that was just because my kid wanted to go. Um, you know, th- there's not there's not like this giant market for out of Gainesville, but that doesn't mean that you don't want the community involved, that you don't want kids coming and seeing the game. Look, those are the kids who are going to decide I want to go to Florida someday. There's going to be a lot of kids who end up making their way in there and say, that's what I want to do. And they'll remember that, right? They'll remember when they're coming up through the high school ranks. So maybe some dad took his kid from Tampa. Maybe some, some mom took her kid from, you know, Lake Okeechobee, drove him up into that area. And all of a sudden now you've got a kid who's bought into the Gators. Just those little things make a difference over time. Um, and that is one thing that I think the the prevailing theme for anyone who's talked to Billy Napier, at least in private, is that he's a very genuine person and that um, he's not going to blow smoke up your up your skirt and and let you uh, and let it, 
you're not going to hear something different from him before you sign versus after you sign. And that genuine nature is only going to be enhanced by more and more interaction with the people who are supporting the program and the people who are potentially considering the program. And so, um, yeah, it's a good thing. There's never a problem to build. I mean, you always want to build goodwill with the community and the fan base. I'm surprised it's taken NIL to sort of push it there. But, you know, I've been surprised that on a lot of the different things with NIL. And uh, this is one of the good sides. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a great thing. And I saw different fans posting their pictures on, on social media and everything. It looked like a great event. And hopefully that's something that continues into the future. All right, let's move on here to the next topic. Uh, talk about a recent article by Edgar Thompson of the Orlando Sentinel, which highlighted Graham Mertz's longtime quarterback coach, Justin Hoover. Hoover says that Mertz will flourish with the Gators. Thompson calls Hoover the coach who knows uh, knows Mertz best predicts a career renaissance. Will, this goes against all of my instincts. I want Graham Mertz, and I want to be clear, I might sound a little negative at times. I'm not negative in the sense that I don't want the man to do well. I hope Mertz crushes it. I hope he comes in here and is a just a great quarterback, but I don't want to build the expectations and calling uh, – <laughs> Predicting a career renaissance is uh, is a bit uh, on the strong side for me. But, hey, this is coming from his quarterback coach. Uh, Hoover also said, one of the things that really held Graham back at Wisconsin was the inability to get into a rhythm. You don't know it until it's third and medium or third and long, and that puts a lot of pressure on the quarterback. Florida will have the ability to be ready or to be really balanced on run pass. It's not always just pass a pass down and distance or situation. That'll help them kind of keep the defense honest, which just makes the dis, uh, decision-making process easier for the quarterback. So overall, this is something we heard a lot in the offseason, Will. Under center at Wisconsin, heavy focus on, uh, on the fullbacks and the tight ends in these formations, but yeah, making different calls at different points under center, Mertz was a shotgun quarterback who let it rip in high school. Big adjustment to him going to play at Wisconsin. It was one of the things that attracted to him to Wisconsin, ironically, because he, he wanted to learn what he felt was more of a pro system that he'd see on Sundays, but really seemed to have issues across the board in many areas at Wisconsin, not just Mertz, but the entire program at the same time. But they're thinking this is maybe a system that's going to fit Mertz uh, a lot better. It is an argument we've heard this past off season but this is what i love about sports will you can talk you can talk you can talk but on august 31st they're going to step on the field at utah and we're going to see how it looks man yeah i mean so in many ways i think this reminds me of when when dan mullen took over in 2018 and there was half the fan base saying felipe franks was a bum and that was half the fan base saying he was a top 60 recruit and we need to give this guy a shot and that dan mullen's going to be able to revive his career Felipe Franks played really well in 2018, mm -hmm. but he was also incredibly inconsistent. And that season, though it ended at 10 and three, could have really easily been seven and five, mm -hmm. depending upon a few things going their way. I mean, they had like a miracle win against South Carolina where there was like that weird, that was weird bad snap. The yeah, the, well, the beer, weird bad snap on fourth down that Franks just throws a miracle up to, I think it was, uh, uh, 
Grimes, I think it was Trevon Grimes, who caught the ball and then fell forward and was able to get a first down on a fourth down. And all of a sudden, the offense couldn't be stopped. And from then, they just sort of ran through everybody. Now, the one thing I will say about that particular year is that is that P. Ryan was a beast there at the running back position and that Florida was able to run the ball, especially those last four or five games of the year. And so Mertz kind of fits that same mold. He does not have the same arm that Felipe Franks did. Not a lot of guys have the same arm that Felipe Franks did, but he's got plenty of arm talent. He was a 65, the 65th ranked quarterback nationally when he came out, which is kind of where Franks was. He completed a f- he completed more balls than him in high school, but only 62% overall his junior and senior year. Franks was at like 58%. Um, his yards per attempt was 9.3 in high school. Franks was up around 12. So I looked at Franks and said, eh, he's kind of a hit or miss and we'll know pretty quickly like what he is when he comes out there. And you could see some things in that 2017 season when everything was falling apart that, that Frank, like I, I said earlier about Miller, like you could see some things. There were some reasons to believe that Felipe Franks could be a good quarterback or at least an effective quarterback, but I didn't think he'd be a great one. And I think that's what I sort of see with Graham Mertz is you look at the Wisconsin tape and sure, it really sucks to have to throw on third and eight all the time. We talk, Austin Armstrong talked about that this past week in one of his interviews where he was talking about getting to third and two and essentially preventing that as the defense. And certainly on, on Wisconsin side, they couldn't run the ball, which, which changed things a lot. I get that that's what, that's what they're talking about here. Florida should have a pretty good running game, assuming that the offensive line has some continuity with ETN, with Montreal Johnson, and, and with some of the other guys they brought in there. But I don't see some like giant renaissance where we're looking at quarterback rankings in the 180 or 175 range. He had a QB rating of 135 last year. Overall, he's at 128. He's thrown 773 passes in college football. So if you're going to see a gifted quarterback who can who can raise the level of his team, we would have seen it already in 773 mm-hmm. passes. And so, yeah, if Florida is able to put him in positions to succeed, then he will be able. It'll be just like in 2018 when they put Felipe Franks in positions to succeed and all of a sudden all Franks had to do was take it and that South Carolina game when he was shushing the crowd was sort of that moment where he realized I don't care I'm not going to let them boo me anymore or if they boo me I'm just not going to listen to it and I'm going to go out I'm going to do what Dan Mullen tells me to do and that will be enough for us to win and you have the blowout win over over uh over Michigan, but Franks wasn't like a central piece of that. He was a game manager in a game where Florida dominated them. Same thing with the win against Florida State that year. And I think that's what you're going to have to see with Mertz. So is it going to be a career renaissance from the standpoint of like Florida fans aren't going to boo him off the field? Yeah, I think that's probably a possibility. But if we're and but the 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 average ranking of quarterbacks who averaged more than 14 yards or 14 passes per game last year, the average QB rating was 140. And Mertz was 135. So he was a below average thrower. He had 50 rush attempts for negative 40 yards. So he was a statue behind the line of scrimmage. And that, to me, is the thing that gets me discouraged. It's not necessarily that that Mertz can't throw the ball through the air. It's that he's not adding anything through the ground game. And since he's not adding anything through the ground game, he has to really improve through the air in order for it to be a net positive for Florida. Can he do it? I mean, yeah, that's the ba- that's the argument, right? The argument is is that is that the Wisconsin offense was terrible, that Chris got fired, that that you know he's coming to Napier's offense, and all of a sudden things are going to be all all roses and daisies. But I'm also looking at a track record last year of a guy like Anthony Richardson who goes in the top ten in the draft, top five in the draft, 
and was incredibly inconsistent within this same offense. And so the idea that we've got a quarterback whisperer who's going to all of a sudden raise the play of everyone, I think is probably a misnomer. Now, the one thing I will say is Billy Napier was incredibly, incredibly risk risk seeking in the first three or four weeks of the season last year. That Tennessee game especially is one where he went for it on every fourth down and he he kind of knew that's what he needed to do. And at some point along the season, that risk, like he he became really risk averse. Like the risk meter just completely changed. And I think some of that had to do with the amount of trust that he had at the quarterback position. And we saw it, right? We saw the Jekyll and Hyde with Anthony Richardson where in the first half he'd look unbeatable and in the second half he'd look terrible against Kentucky and Florida State. We saw that happen. Um and so that is the one thing that I think Mertz really brings to the table is I think there's going to be a level of trust between Mertz and Billy Napier that is different than the level of trust he had last year. And so one thing you might see, especially early on, is that risk meter. I think that's something we should look at in that Utah game. Are they going for it on every freaking fourth down, even when it seems like it's kind of a risk to go for it on fourth down? Or... Are they still kind of, eh, sometimes we go for it, sometimes we don't, all that sort of stuff. If, if that's the case, I don't think you get a lot more out of Graham Mertz than than what you got at Wisconsin. If he allows that risk meter to all of a sudden trend up, well, now Armstrong made a really interesting comment this week in his, in his, uh, his post-practice com, uh, um, interview where he said that once you get on the plus side of the field, third and four is now second and four because you know the analytics tell you to go for it. And so are they going to start treating it like that? I think last year they just tried to, especially the second half of the year, they just tried to get a first down on third and four. And and they didn't really go for the jugular. And the question will be this year, do they go for the jugular when they're sitting there at third and four because they know they're going to go for it on fourth and four and they trust the quarterback to be able to do it. If that happens, then then Mertz can be a really effective player in here. But is he going to be, you know, are we going to be seeing Hendon Hooker? I, I don't, I don't think so. No, no highs Mertz for me in my future. <laughs> Though I will say, I put twenty bucks on him for Heisman because the odds were really good. So uh, if he plays great in the game against Utah, I will not make the same mistake I did last year with Anthony Richardson and let that one ride. I'm cashing it out right away. <laughs> I I think that with Mertz, you have that strong ground game. If he can be a guy that just keeps the defense honest enough for that ground game to excel that'd be great now if you're talking about the you, you look at it you go back and watch i watched i just watched a lot of the wisconsin games this uh uh past weekend here under he's under center a ton he I really feel bad is. for you watching that wisconsin offense well yeah i mean going through youtube you know i'm fast forwarding to I'm, I was really concentrating on most of his past plays. So it's getting through the games, a decent clip there, but he, he is under center a lot in those clips. And so if he's a guy that's more comfortable and you see, there's a lot of shifting in the offense, there's a lot of pre-snap, uh, a lot of pre-snap motions and everything. And I'm not saying he won't have some of that within Napier's offense here, but I do think in some ways he's going to have uh, a, a reliable ground game, which, by the way, Wisconsin did have some really good running backs last year. They did have some moments where they could run the ball pretty effectively up there. I know it wasn't every moment, but the the thing that that really stood out too is in the biggest moments last year with Wisconsin, when they needed him the most, he struck that offense just really struggled. And then when they played good defenses, that even the Illinois game, Ohio State, they were just buried by about halftime in those games. So. If if we can be an, an offense that can run the ball, not make a lot of mistakes, because that's another thing I noticed a, a lot about his games in which he played bad in, Will, 
like there was a lot of instances where he's just throwing it into coverage, making a couple dumb throws here and there. He actually can rip it pretty good. And particularly over the middle of the field, I actually thought he was pretty solid over the middle of the field. He's good. He's good on, on a roll. And a lot of times, but there's times where he tries to uh, get creative and do a little too much. And then all of a sudden the big mistake occurs. And if he can avoid that type of play and just make quick, smart decisions and, and not turn the and focus on not turn the ball over a whole lot, be that game manager. Like you said, I think Billy Napier can find a way to squeeze something out of merch maybe more than what we're expecting but i'm not expecting a career renaissance i would call what bo nix at oregon did last year that's a career renaissance for me michael Penix coming back to life he had that great 2020 at indiana kind of fell off the map reunites with uh deborah out in washington Penix coming back to life that's a career renaissance i i, I don't i don't know i'm not i i'm not saying it can't happen here but if i if you made me bet on it uh, I will say I'm not in the Heisman camp either, Will, and I also did not put any money on he- uh, on Heisman, so I can follow up and safely say that my actions uh, are following my words on that. <laughs> well, I just I figured so I actually so we'll talk about this in the next section, but I I like Florida's chances against Utah, and so I think the odds are going to get that. in my favor, <laughs> and then we cash out. So not the entire year, but here, look, I did a floor ceiling exercise with the quarterbacks back in what did this been back in March, yeah. and I had the floor for Mertz a QB rating of 135. And I had the ceiling, a QB rating of 155. That'd be 25 touchdowns, five interceptions, 8.1 yards per attempt, and a 62% completion percentage. That's like his ceiling, which using my yards above replacement because he doesn't run the ball at all and takes a bunch of sacks, still has him slightly negative, slightly below average in terms of overall quarterback value. Max Brown, I had I had his, like, if he flops, he's in, like, the 121 to 125 range for QB rating, but I've got his ceiling at 170, right? That's the same 25 to 5 um, touchdown-interception ratio, but all of a sudden he's completing 67% of his passes. So that's sort of where I'm going with all of this, is I think that there is – you have to know after this year, if Graham Mertz is not your quarterback for next year, you have to know, can Max Brown pilot my quarterback position until DJ Lagway is ready? Right. Because if you're just going to throw Lagway in for the first game next year, well, he better be ready because, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but essentially because there, because there's no Jaden Rashada and because there's no Austin Simmons in any of these, in any of these recruiting classes, it's DJ Lagway or bust. Lagway is going to have to be awesome for this program to get to where we want it to go. And if that's the case, then you got to be able to bring him along in the way that you think is best in order to make sure that you're ready to go. And so if you think about 2023 in terms of the long-term development of the program, if Graham Mertz is still the quarterback next year, then it means he didn't have a quarterback renaissance. Because if he has a renaissance, he's going to the NFL. Which still means you need to know whether Max Brown can pilot your offense while you're waiting for DJ Lagway to be ready. Or you've just decided that Lagway is going to be in there first day, true freshman start and everything. And that's a real risk when you start doing, when you start doing that um, because he might not be successful right away because not everybody is successful, even if they're great right when they come in off the start. So I, I, I hear what people are saying. I understand the desire to have someone with all sorts of experience in there. But if you look at, if you look at what I want to learn out of the 2023 season, 
I think whether Mertz is the Wisconsin Mertz or whether Mertz is a former or is back to his high school self and able to make good decisions, I think is probably irrelevant really in the long-term success of the program. Obviously we want to win as much as we can this year and look, Brown has to beat him out if he's going to start. <laughs> you don't, you don't play a worse player just because he's a younger player. You play the guy who's the best guy who can help you win. But I think overall, the the question of whether he's Wisconsin Mertz or whether he's this advanced player, you know, affects us this year. But other than that, um, long term for the program, I don't know that it has a whole lot of impact on the health of the program. I think I said this in the preseason magazine, but the only thing scarier than this quarterback room with Graham Mertz leading the way might be this quarterback room without Graham Mertz here in Gainesville. So <laughs> that's just something to keep in perspective. I, I know like I'm with careful you. what you wish for. Is that yeah, what you're telling us? I, I'm with you on the, on, on the Max Brown thing. I like Miller. I, I think we're relatively on the same page there. I, I was just trying to defend him earlier to say not the most sample size, not the, not the biggest sample size there to, to judge the guy on. I, I don't want to bury him based off of uh, one performance and a couple of spring games there. So I think he deserves more of an opportunity than that, but I, I I'm, glad that we do have a, a guy that started at a solid big 10 program he's played difficult road games how he's played those road games don't i'd be really if pleased if, if graham mertz to, was but... our backup option i'd be right. really pleased if mertz was our backup right if he was a security blanket for someone else that that would be more exciting i i would say but i do think that he is a necessary he is a necessary option going into the season yeah. and i think this article uh from Thompson talking to his coach, hey, I'm glad the coach is optimistic, but yeah, I I don't think we need the weight of expectations on Grammar. I'm actually trying to do Grammar a favor here and not build up the expectation. Like, let, come out and surprise. Let the guy surprise us. Let the guy go into Utah, lead two opening drives, uh, 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 two opening touchdown drives, and us go, wow, all right. <laughs> like that's what I would like to see from Grammar, and I hope we get that well, but. I'm not going to be the guy pumping expectations on that. We'll see how it goes, and, and I'm definitely rooting for the guy. But, Will, speaking of that Utah game, let's move on here to the toss-up section. In our preseason magazine, we did win, loss, and toss for each uh, game on the schedule. And we do that as a way to say, hey, you know, this. I'm, I'm, I don't want to totally project this as a win, the toss-ups. I don't totally want to project this as a win, but I'm not writing it off either. There's definitely that scenario where – like Will calls the Utah game a toss. I personally called that a loss on the Utah game, but we have a couple other agreements in there. I got Tennessee as a toss up, for example, I at home. I, I like that our odds better than that one. But with Utah, Will, you're going to do a whole series of articles here on these toss up games. How do you want to start with the Utes? Well, so first off, the, the series is going to be leading up to the season. There'll be a longer Utah preview that week, but the, so we can um, the Utah game. Yeah, but the, but the point the point is is that look, Florida has a lot of question marks, but every program has a lot of question marks, and so when we look at these things and we look and go, oh well, Florida lost Anthony Richardson, and you know they they switched from Patrick Tony to Austin Armstrong, and you know you've got all these different wide receivers that we're relying on, and the offensive line is having turnover, and all of that is true, but every other program also has some of the same type of things that are going on, so we need to keep that in mind when we get negative about our own program in saying that everyone else has these things that they're not quite sure about either. Mm -hmm. And the the thing I'm not sure about actually isn't I think rising is going to play right that but the question I have is rising going to be rising because when you actually look at his stats, 
His throwing stats, not that impressive. 149 was his quarterback rating last year. 146 was his quarterback rating the year before. So he didn't see a jump between 2021 and 2022. He had a really good quarterback or touchdown interception ratio, really good completion percentage, but he only averaged 7.9 yards per attempt last year. He was below average if you take away his running. But he was a really effective running quarterback. 74 rushes in, in 2021 for 499 yards. So averaged 6.7 yards per rush. 77 rushes for 465. Average 6.0 yards per rush. And he ran a lot against Florida specifically. Ran for, I think it was like nine rushes for 114 yards or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if your memory is of that game is, is Utah running it down Florida's throat. Some of that is true, but it was not cam rising running them up and down the field, like throwing the ball. In fact, I think we all kind of thought Florida's defense was kind of fixed after that first game. Yeah. They gave up some long drives and there were some things in there, but I mean, we were looking at that going, Hey, if rising in this, and this offense is awesome, then, then cool. But, but that's not necessarily what we saw. We saw him kill us with our, with his legs. Well, he's coming off an ACL injury that he suffered in January. That's like a 12-month injury, usually minimum, to get back to full tilt. And if you look at the NFL, there's some really interesting stats that I found. I'll, I'll, I'm looking them to linking to them in the article. That if you look at the three-year return rate for these guys, quarterbacks tend to come back to their original statistical profile more often than other than other quarterback or more often than other uh, more often than other players. But the ones that really fall off are outside linebackers, cornerbacks, and running backs. So the guys who have the most in their legs that they have to go do stuff with are the ones who tend not to make it back to their original production level, even three years out. So we're talking about a guy who's nine months, eight months maybe removed from an injury. It's the first game of the year. They're not even sure he's going to play because of the injury, which makes me think that even if he's back there, he's going to be stationary. They're not running read option for Cam Rising on the third play of the game coming off of an ACL injury. And so a lot of the stuff that he brought to the table last year, his yards above replacement, which is my stat that measures both running and passing, was 0.97 in 2021, then a little bit lower, 0.84 in 2022. But if you make him a poor runner, all of a sudden his his yard starts dropping down in the Graham Mertz range, where if you make him a stationary player who cannot run the ball, he has not done enough with his arm in the past to make me really fear him. So that's sort of the point is we look at this and we go, oh, Utah has an enormous advantage at quarterback when you look at rising versus Mertz or Brown or Miller or whoever's going to be in there for Florida, right? Florida doesn't know who their quarterback is. Utah knows who their quarterback is. They must have a huge advantage. That's not really true. And there's a lot of other reasons, I think, to believe that that's a toss-up. But to me, that's the biggest one, is you look at the quarterback position, which is where 90% of games turn. And Cam Rising really, if I looked at his profile the same way I'm looking at Graham Mertz, and I said, you can't run anymore. Am I excited about Cam Rising as my quarterback for an entire year? I'm really not. And so that first game of the year, I think that's one of the things that I'm going to be looking for is in the first three, four, five plays is Rising able to get out of the pocket, make guys miss, and turn a two-yard loss into an eight-yard gain. If he's not able to do that, that's a huge part of his game that gets taken away. And all of a sudden, we're looking at Graham Mertz versus Graham Mertz rather than Graham Mertz versus Cam Rising. And that's why I think that's probably a toss-up. Graham Mertz versus Graham Mertz. Don't get your expectations too high on that one either, Will. <laughs> uh, yeah, rising, I, I think it seems like all indications are that he'll be at least out there. 
that he, they're, they're going to give him a shot. Um, I'm not sure from a Utah perspective, I'm all that fired up about trotting my quarterback who's nine months off of an ACL out for Austin Armstrong's debut. Cause I think he's, I think he might be a little amped up on that sideline. He might, I could see a scenario where Billy looks over at the first quarter and be like, yo, you need to dial, dial it back cal- a little cal- bit. Cal- <laughs> calm down, man. Calm down with that guy's energy. But I, uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure I love that. But the thing with rising that I like about his game, and this is a, a savvy quarterback that he does a good job of picking and choosing when it's, he runs often. And, you know, he's not, he's, they're not, he's not dealing with a lot of contact when he's running on there. So it, it's going to, I, I think with this Utah matchup, what we saw in that second half last year is that they remembered, oh, we only gave Tavion Thomas. I think he had like six or eight carries the first half. We Let's give our stud running back the ball 17, 18, 19 times, whatever it was in the second half. And I think that physical running game just dominated Florida for a good stretch of that uh, second half. But, hey, Florida ha- stepped up big a couple times. They had that stop on the goal line where Thomas slipped and they ended up holding them on the fourth down there. And then uh, of course, Amari Bernie at the end. So a couple of those, a couple of those plays swing different ways. Could have been a different result there. Will, but if you shut down that run game to your point, put the pressure in on rising to, to really win through the passing game, that could be an interesting matchup in game one out in Salt Lake. Well, so two things, Thomas no longer there. They also lost Kincaid one of their tight ends. They the had tight end back, yeah, yep. but Kincaid, the tight end who just like terrorized Amari Bernie, yep. other than the last play, he's gone too. And here's the other thing that I think people tend to forget about Utah or, or overlook for Utah last year. They had the 90th ranked defense in yards per play last year and somehow gave up like the 27th least points per game. There's right. a huge disconnect between what they were doing in terms of yardage they were allowing and the points they were actually giving up. And those disconnects tend not to last year after year after year. So their defense was just as bad as Florida's last year. It just got covered up by turnovers. It got covered up by playing crappy offenses. And it got covered up in a lot of different ways until they played some teams that were better. And all of a sudden, they couldn't stop anybody. And, and um, you know, I think there's a reason why Florida was able to win that game last year. And Anthony Richardson was a big part of it. But, you know, there were other reasons Florida was able to win that game. Florida's a lot closer to Utah than I think most people think. And when you start looking at some of the underlying stats, the the stats get a lot closer and you start to look at it and go, hmm, like these teams both probably should have been like eight and four last year based on the underlying stats. There was some weird stuff that went on that prevented them from getting there or at least prevented Florida from having the same type of record as Utah. And if you take away Rising's running ability, well, now all of a sudden, look, I'm not saying Florida's going to win. I'm saying it, there's a reason that I have this as a toss-up and not a loss. And uh, and and Rising, it's not necessarily does he play, does he not play. In fact, I think it might be better for Utah if he doesn't play because they'll have a fully healthy guy out there. Um, I think if his running ability is impacted at all, I think we're going to find out that Cam Rising is not an NFL prospect for a reason and or not a huge, you know, can't-miss first-round draft pick. Um prospect for a reason or he's going to show us he is a can't miss first first round draft pick and florida's going to lose but that's sort of the toss-up nature of it right he's going to have to take a major step forward through the air in order to make in order to make this something that's not a close game and that's exciting to me because you know i think you go into it and go oh god like second year we don't know anthony richardson the defense was so bad like is this something where we'll get embarrassed and i don't think that's the case i think this one's going to be close and there's a reason i think it's toss-up it's also opening day we saw some sloppiness out of both teams on opening day last year we're going to see it again this year. There's going to be some 
mistakes made. We saw Utah bounce back. Hey, did, did you watch them play USC later in the year? Did you watch them? And, and if you missed the first time, did you watch them beat USC the second time? Utah certainly pulled it together as the season went along. And that's a team that Kyle Whittingham often gets that group. They, they, they get cooking later in the season. And uh, that, that's a team that typically gets better as the year goes along. But we've seen stretches where Utah has struggled in September's past. So it, I'm happy that we're getting them out of the gate. I, I'm also, hey, look, we're going out there. I'm confident that the run game is going to be able to do something. But you talked about Richardson's effect in last year's Utah game. And I know we didn't light the world on fire in terms of like what we did on the scoreboard. But there was that, wasn't it right before halftime where he rips off like what, the hey. 50, 50-ish yard touchdown run? That That's just Richardson being the freak that he is. That's a freak touchdown play that – where, where's that play going to come from this year? We got to pull off that big play. Otherwise, you don't pull off a play like that. You're really kind of in that slog with Utah. It's going to be that type of slugfest. And I think that's what Napier might want as well this year. And so back to our merch discussion, can you be the guy that is the veteran quarterback who makes the good decisions and stays out of trouble? Take the punt. Take the punt on, on, third, on, on third and 12 rather than – you know, you know, if you need to check down, check down rather than forcing it in and throwing that key interception that's going to set up Utah, give him a, a cheap field position early on. I, I, I do think that is those are the types of plays that are going to make the difference in the game with Utah. But I, I do think it can be a very competitive game. It would not shock me to see Florida win out in Salt Lake. However, I, I, I do. Yeah, I do think there's a greater chance. Is there any chance that Florida's blowing out Utah? On the opening on opening day, well, sure. See any chance? Their defense is terrible. Utah, like, yeah, I, I think this is something that people I, have overlooked. I think their defense got lucky last year, and I think that they played really bad offenses through two throughout the season. And I think there's a disconnect between how many points they, they did, gave up. They, and gave, their defense they got lit up by overall. they got lit up by a couple of big offenses. They did they get did. lit up a couple times, but I, well, I, and I, here's the thing: is is Mertz, <laughs> Mertz for all of the Illinois and that sort of stuff, and that's the stuff that might disturb you. Um, the St. Ohio State's defense, the St. Michigan's defense, in terms of athletic ability and so he's not gonna be surprised by anybody he sees it's not like we got a transfer quarterback from Tulane who hasn't seen um who hasn't seen this kind of speed he, right. he's gonna look he's gonna look at Utah's defense and say yeah I've seen this I've played against Purdue I've played against Rutgers I've played against you know Maryland like the, that's the level of defense that you're seeing from Utah now look maybe they've improved a lot this offseason I'm hoping Florida's defense has improved a lot this offseason but everybody speaks about the Florida defense like it's like we're lepers and then looks at Utah and goes, Oh, well they won the PAC 12. They must be great. They've got holes. And I think that's the thing we got to really recognize about all the, all the opponents on Florida schedule is they've got holes. And the question is, where are those holes? Can Florida exploit them? And does it put you closer? And when you're talking about an opening game on the road, Look, it's great for for Utah that rising isn't having to come to the swamp and play coming off of an ACL injury. But I mean, you know, is he going to run for 115 yards again this year? And that offense for his – I mean, think about how bad Florida's defense was last year. And think about how many points they gave up to Utah and how how there really wasn't any explosiveness from the Utah offense, even with a fully healthy Cam Rising. Because, I mean, Florida's defense struggled to not give up 40 pretty much all year long and gave up, what, like 23 to Utah? So, you know, I, I just look at it and I go, for all of the – the accolades that are sent Utah's way. Look, deservedly so. They won the freaking Pac-12. But, you know, 
there's a reason why the Big Ten and the and the Big Twelve are now absolving all, or dissolving all the Pac-12 schools because there's only a few of them that are worth taking, and the rest of the dregs are just sitting there. And you know, you when you get when you get three or four bye weeks during the season, it becomes a little bit easier to be able to get up for the game against USC. Yeah. Yeah, not a ton of respect for the two-time defending Pac-12 champions, but, you know, not a lot of respect for the Pac-12 across college football, as we've seen in recent weeks as well. Uh, I, I will say, so give me give me your split on Florida-Utah. Let's see how much trash you're talking here in this toss-up, where you you seem you're, – you're, you're inspiring a little confidence out of me, Will. I'm not going to lie. It, I'm I'm gonna take Florida right. straight up. I, I I've already bet on Florida, Florida. straight they're, up. Florida they're straight seven up. and a half. They're seven and a half point underdogs. I have taken them against the spread already, with a fairly generous with a fairly generous bet. Um, it's nice to be in Pennsylvania where that's legal. But uh, listen, I hope you're right. I'm I'm rooting for you 100. percent I'm about 70 30 that that this is gonna be a a Utah game. A Utah. There's, win. there's this is gonna no. Be tough I don't to I don't think that I don't think there's any way. And I'm gonna I'm gonna regret saying this, but I don't think there's any way. Utah beats him by more than a touchdown. Uh, if if you can get a, if you can get seven and a half points, I think you'd take it. I, I think the, I don't think there's enough explosion on the Utah offense to make Florida pay for some of the mistakes they'll make on defense. And Armstrong is going to get some big plays. That is his history. His history is he's coming. Like I watched him. But play. you're going to have watched... you're having faith in that with the Florida defense. I, I'm at a show me state with the. No, just, I'm telling. I'm, tell, I'm telling you that Florida's. Point, Florida no, defense. what I'm telling you is Florida's defense and Utah's defense were about equal last year. So as bad as Florida's defense was, point total wise, that wasn't true. But in terms of just the overall underlying statistics that I care about. I thought they were pretty I think they're pretty close. Maybe Utah Utah was a little bit better because Florida was so bad. Mm-hmm. But but they were pretty close. And I think that's what ends up getting and I think Utah's offense is not explosive. I think they were able to put Florida's defense on its heels at times last year because Florida's defense was so bad. But everybody else who played Florida's defense last year just shredded them. And Utah didn't with a healthy rising. So if you're asking me, like, what percentage do I put in this game? If this was a neutral site, I tell you, I think Florida should be favored. If it's uh, at Utah, I think it's probably 50-50. I mean, I really do think this one's a toss-up. I I will not be surprised if Utah wins the game. I'd be shocked if they win by more than seven. The optimistic Will Miles. Hashtag optimistic Will. Let's start a pattern here for 2023. Well, let's I'm not talk about recruiting then. I'm in on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, recruiting, hey, number three in the country right now, right? So you, you're doing okay there too. So we'll see. There's an article coming in, in September 1st on that one. So we'll see how we, we'll see where we are there. All right. Well, we got got a little bit of work to do there, but don't maybe optimistic Will will still be around for that one. Uh, let's go into the conference realignment discussion. Will, lot lot to talk about. Uh, one of the big Movers and shakers earlier in the week was when Colorado first made its decision to bolt from the Pac-12 to the Big 12. Uh, My favorite analysis of this move was from Oregon coach Dan Lanning, who said, what did they ever win the Pac-12 again? That that was about the best analysis. Right right before Oregon (laughs) bails from the Big 10. Right, yeah. (laughs) And then Oregon a few days later gets in the big 10 with uh with Washington in a move that was really talked about for a good year here. I'm going to be honest, the back 12, it died the day that USC left. And I don't care about UCLA because they got the tag along credit because they're in Los Angeles and they're absolutely the little brother in that scenario. So you took the Los Angeles schools 
from the Pac-12. That was the heart of Pac-12 country right there for many, many years. And I know that Oregon's been up and USC's been down of late, but USC is the crown jewel of that conference. So as soon as you ripped uh, USC out of that conference, it it, it was uh, fairly dead. Well, I'm hearing a lot of interesting takes on this here. Um, there's a, a clip going around from uh, Eli Drinkwitz talking about whether or not the kids were consulted. Who Did anybody ask the kids? And he's getting a lot of praise for his point on Twitter. Uh, like it, A lot of people are saying that, that Drinkwitz is really hitting the nail on the head and, and he's doing a good job here of, of pointing out some of the craziness that's been going on in, in college football. I realize that a lot of people have a lot of strong emotions about a big conference like the Pac-12 Pac uh, looking like they're on their final legs here. But it's hard for me to listen to the head coach of Missouri who just did the exact same thing, this school that just did the exact same thing about a decade ago in conference realignment, who's been at every school he's coached at since he entered the college rank. He's never been at one school for more than three years, a three-year stretch. And when he's out there talking about what's good for the kids, I can understand that. And he was really talking about non-revenue sports outside of football, like your softballs and, and volleyballs and all that. But I'm always suspicious of people. I, I was taught in my life, Will, if someone says it's not about the money, it's probably about the money, right? If someone says, what about the kids? They're probably not really thinking about the kids either. So it, it's an interesting perspective from a coach who – seems to want to use this moment to get on his high horse about something who has a $6 million deal. And if he has a decent season this year, we'll be looking at signing an, ex an extension to be commenting on the state of uh, college sports in the way he did. It's almost like he, he has no self-awareness about his level of participation <laughs> in jumping from app state to Missouri too. So I, I wonder if he considered the kids when he spent one year as a head coach at app state before he went to Missouri, but it's a little bit crocodile tears in this whole scenario. Will from a lot of these people that are pretending like uh, not even a decade and a half ago, the PAC 10 was, they did expand to 12 teams. They, they swiped Utah. They swiped Colorado from the big 12 and they were on the brink of taking Oklahoma and Texas and talking to, I believe maybe a couple other schools with them to form the PAC 16. So, not even a decade and a half ago, they are the aggressors. The PAC-12 the Pac was the aggressor on the expansion trail. So while I do feel bad for PAC-10 fans, PAC-12 fans, whatever you want to call them at this point, in some regards, in, in terms of losing history, Wash yeah, Washington State, Oregon State, and Stanford and Cal are left behind. Every single time there's been realignment in college sports, there is there are teams that have been left behind. It's not the death of a program, though. We just saw TCU play for a national title this year. They were in the Southwest Conference for many years. They got left out of the realignment process when the Big 12 was formed. Are they doing okay? They're doing fine. And Washington State, Oregon State, some of these schools, how many of these schools look at Vanderbilt, for example. If the SEC had to contract and some of the SEC schools got picked off and Vandy got left out, is anybody feeling sorry for Vandy? Are they like basically – Vandy was born 
into the SEC conference in 1933, and they've just held that spot. Unlike Tulane, unlike Georgia Tech, Vandy was smart enough not to give up that spot. The SEC isn't what it didn't become the SEC because of Vanderbilt. You, They're just kind of here. They're just you're looking here. so you're looking at this in a really interesting way, which I think is wrong. But um, but you you've been laughing at me for years now because ever since this conference realignment started, I kept telling you that Rutgers was like the crown jewel of of the teams that were going to be in here. And so if the Big Ten dissolved, and that's that's but, the leadoff point. In trying to prove me wrong in an argument, yes, that's you call the lead-off point. The crown because, jewel of something. Yes, Rutgers because, isn't even the crown jewel of New Jersey, man. They're not even the crown jewel of New Jersey. <laughs> no, no, go no, ahead. no, no, no. So ahead. yes, I'm going to keep going since I let you go for like three minutes and you said nothing of, <laughs> of substance. But anyway, so why did they pick UCLA, USC and UCLA? USC has a lot of panache, obviously, but why did they pick UCLA? It's because lost the Los Angeles market can can sustain two big time programs. Why do you take Washington and Oregon? Really? Because those teams flood money into Seattle and flood money into Portland. And so the big time cities on the West Coast are the ones the Big Ten just went after. So if you start thinking about where's the expansion going to come from, I know there's been a lot of talk about Florida State. Clemson is the one that makes the most sense to me if you're going to pick a team from the ACC because that's the Charlotte market. Like and and Vanderbilt's not going anywhere cuz that's the Nashville market. And if you look at where people are moving right now, COVID has really accelerated this, but if you look at where people are moving, Charlotte is like one of the fastest growing cities in the, in the country. And and Nashville, one of the fastest growing cities in the country, and Georgia Tech is the one you might need to look for too, because Atlanta is one of the fastest growing places in the country. So those are the places I think you look at and say, where do I want markets that are big? It's becoming a professional thing. And look, it, it was it was pretty obvious from the start, right when um, I believe it was it was Justice Kavanaugh, right when he came down with a decision that basically, you know, it was it was a court decision that didn't dictate the professionalism of college athletes. But what it did was it made it very clear that the Supreme Court would not be favorable to the NCAA in anything that actually got to the Supreme Court. And it was essentially telling the lower courts, just go ahead and blow this up before it comes to us because we're going to blow it up if it does come our way. And that's he, he, he releases that decision and all of a sudden NIL is on the horizon, right? And the NCAA, the same way it does with everything, just did a terrible job of, of rolling that stuff out. Differences all over the place. Now you got Tommy, Tommy Tuberville trying to pass legislation in, in Congress with a bunch of other different NIL bills to try to essentially put the genie back in the bottle. The genie's not going to go back in the bottle. And and if if Drinkwitz really cares about the kids, what he needs to do is support their their right to collectively bargain as employees and get some of the revenue that comes into these organizations. And that's where this is headed because the players are just going to end up suing until they finally get treated like employees because they are employees. And until people finally acknowledge, and what's going to happen is, is that you're going to see consolidation for an organization that can then break off from the NCAA as its own entity, whether it's 30 teams, 40 teams, 50 teams, 60 teams, whatever it is, it's going to be an organization that breaks off from the NCAA, has its own rules, has NIL rules, but then also collectively bargained 
stuff. They'll be associated with the university. You'll probably be allowed to take classes, <laughs> but, but let's be honest, like the, the, the degree programs for athletes have been watered down over the years. I and mean, with that whole North Carolina scandal where they weren't showing up to class and weren't turning any papers and where all of a sudden all the basketball players were passing. I think there'll be some consideration for the NCAA attorney. I think that's one of the things that might dictate how the alignment, how the realignment occurs. But that's all that's happening is, is the power is getting hoarded in different spots. Now, thankfully for Gator fans, Florida is a central piece of the Southeastern Conference, and the Southeastern Conference is the leadership, has the leadership position when it comes to building whatever this super system is going to be. And though Gainesville is relatively small, the reach of Gator Nation is bigger than any other entity in the state. So, you know, if you told me Florida State or Miami, Florida State's the obvious one. You're going to leave the Canes out because the Canes have history, but University of Miami, from an alumni perspective, is not really all that big compared to Florida and Florida State. I think if you asked me who to go after in the ACC, I'd tell you it's Georgia Tech, it's Clemson. Maybe you go after Syracuse because that's, again, that sort of New York market. It's also it's also the journalism capital of the world, so hopefully you can get some favorable coverage on ESPN if you do it that way. Um, you know, I, I just think it's like look to the big cities, look to the big markets and not necessarily like, I don't think Syracuse is a big market because Syracuse, New York is some huge market. It's because New York state and New York city are enormous. So, you know, what's the school in, in Philadelphia? That's a big place. What's the one that feeds in there? You know, Penn state's the one that feeds in there. It's the big school. You probably don't, you know, you're not getting anything from the university of Pennsylvania. So those are the things you have to start looking at is understanding, okay, where are the big cities? And then where do you want to pick off the organizations that are in those big cities? So Missouri is an effective piece because it's essentially St. Louis, right? Vanderbilt is an effective piece because it's Nashville. And the SEC did not bring in A&M and Missouri because they love Texas A&M and the history of the Aggies and they love Missouri. And, hey, it's a journalism school. That, that increases our grade point average for our football programs. They brought in Missouri and they brought in Texas A&M because they wanted a foothold in Texas and they wanted a foothold in Missouri because those are big growing markets that they feel like they can exploit when it comes time to do this sort of stuff. And that's why they're in a leadership position. Missouri consulted their students before giving up uh, regional rivalries with Kansas and Iowa State and Nebraska I don't think that occurred. No, so I, I cared. Well, uh, yes. So you're standing there in your Missouri shirt and your Missouri hat, bemoaning the system that you and your school actively participate in. And by the way, for the record, I, I, I if I could draw it up, I would keep the Pac-10, the Pac-12. I'd keep, you know, the I'd keep, the, I'd bring back Big East football, man. I like the old setup in a lot of ways. But if this is what the future is. It's it's always been heading this direction to some extent. College football has been morphing for the better part of 40 to 50 years. They're doing it a little bit slowly. It's happening so fast in the last few years. And I know you already brought up Brent Kavanaugh, Will, so we, we try to stay off politics and we try not to go down that road on this show. But I wonder, I wonder the extent of the effect of a lot of the, the, the decisions to really shut down conference play in 2020 had on revenues that are still being felt out there where you lose essentially would they play like four games in the Pac-12 <laughs> that year the SEC played what like Bama is out there ripping off 12 Florida like, played 12 Florida played 12 like that's what I'm saying you lose essentially an entire season of revenue and some of those games were canceled out out west and everything well, you know what you know what it really is in different it, it, some of those different states but I wonder how much of that accelerated all all of this decision and I, I've heard stuff uh, uh, from 
a lot of the 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 sort the the podcasts I follow and everything else, and I've heard about Fox having a big role in this because they they do the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and all that. And I'm sure it's a lot of uh, things being driven by TV, but to pretend like that we are just tearing apart all this tradition, we've been tearing it apart for my entire lifetime of following college football. I, I we came in. As kids, what's the first season you remember of college football, Will? What's the year? Uh, let's see. Probably 88. 88, right. Mine... So what was that? That was Notre Dame won the national title, I think, with uh, yeah, Rocket Tony Ismail. Rice, Tony Rice at quarterback, right? Lou yeah. Holtz? Rocket Ismail, yeah. Yeah, so my, my first season I, I really remember a lot of is 1993. So by that point, you had the conference championship games already existed. And you had taken Arkansas from the Southwest Conference, which, by the way, they were a member of the Southwest Conference since the early days of the Southwest Conference, going back to like 1915, 75, 80 years out there. Uh, that, But they felt alienated by all the Texas schools, so they go to the SEC. South Carolina joins the SEC in 92, expands to a conference championship game, which was unheard of in college sports at the time. The Big Ten resisted that for a long time, even though they added Penn State in 1993. So my point is, is like all this expansion has been occurring for in our entire lifetimes, Will, our entire lifetime. But you can't tell me that we don't have a better product today in terms of being able to watch the games on TV. What's happening is everybody, what you're witnessing is the death of the regionality of college football. And it's fully embracing the true nationality of the sport because when we were kids at three 30, you would get games in certain markets, right? You couldn't watch all the games you wanted. Now all the games are on all these different channels and it doesn't matter where you live. You could watch as much big 10 football as you want. If you live in Florida, it wasn't like that until about what? 2006 or seven. So this has been a national sport for a long time. We're just seeing the end kind of the end game of where that's going. And I think these schools out West, even though the the Pac-12 might be a, a dead conference in the next uh, few weeks here, these schools out west that are, are joining the Big Ten, that are joining the Big 12, they're going to get more exposure to schools in the east because they're going to be on the field with them. They're going to be in the same conference with them. People are going to pay way more attention. I think it's going to do great things for these schools out west over time, even though you're just trashing tradition, which, by the way, this sport's been doing since the 80s and 90s. Well, look, I think the 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 issue that I have with all the hand wringing is all the people talking about, you know, how things are changing and exactly what you said, an acknowledge a lack of an acknowledgement that it's been changing forever. Um, but I think the point you make about 2020 is actually a great point. So that year in the champion, what you know what we realized? We realized the sport is awesome, whether the Pac-12 is involved or not. And in fact, even whether the Big Ten's involved or not, Ohio State still made the playoff. And that was a little bit controversial, if you remember, because I think they went 6-0 and and made the playoff. But you had Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Notre Dame. Alabama beats Ohio State for the national national championship. And no one felt like that was an unfair national championship. I think we all thought the best teams made it. None of us were sitting there going, oh, Oregon only played four games. How could they have been left out? Nobody was going, man, that Wazoo Oregon State game really would have tilted things if we right. had that one that happened. And so that's what happened. I mean, they became they they have become obsolete over the past decade, really, with poor leadership at the they top did of the conference. In a lot of ways, yeah. Absolutely. But 
the the issue is is that it wasn't maybe as apparent to everybody until that 2020 year where everybody went yeah they were wait a minute the Pac-12 didn't play I didn't even remember right like I don't sit there and look at the 20 I guess it was 2021 national championship for Alabama that they won the 2020 season I don't look at that as a national championship that's cheapened like I don't think I don't look at that championship the same way maybe you do the Lakers championship in the bubble where they're playing with no fans and all that sort of stuff and and they had a big break and everybody's able to get healthy in order to then play the rest of the season mm-hmm. you know I, I look at it and I go no that's a legitimate national championship because the teams they played in that championship, I mean, they just absolutely blitzed Notre Dame and they absolutely blitzed Ohio State for the championship. And they ran through really good teams in the SEC, beating beating Florida in the SEC championship game and and playing a 10-game SEC or an 11-game SEC schedule with the SEC championship game. So there's nothing cheap about that national championship. And since you can play a national championship that's not cheap without those teams, what does that say about the value of those teams? And that's really what we're seeing. So I think that's a good point. And, uh, you know, Hey, again, I go back to, I haven't paid a ton of attention to this. I mean, I've paid attention because I pay attention to college football, but I haven't really dove into it that much just because Florida's in prime position. And that's the only, the only one that I, I mean, I guess I care about Virginia Tech a little bit, but they're going to get, they're going to get left out because it's like the middle of nowhere, Virginia. Now they do kind well, of. For now though, Will, for now, maybe like, I, I think that that's, it's, it's, it's a very short term outlook to look at. Schools like an Oregon State or what? You, I, I'll give you a good example. You look at like a Cincinnati, right? Cincinnati, they're getting ready to join the Big 12. The Big 12 seems pretty safe after the moves they made recently. So they're going to hang around and they're going to be keep their schools somewhat relevant within the sport of football here. But Cincinnati's until the Big 10 and the first. SEC poach them for the top 40 or 45 sure. in the sport. Sure, but I think Cincinnati has made a good case for itself over the past decade of football. But they joined, they got, they got left out in the cold because you had schools like Pitt, and uh, was it Syracuse? And I forget the last one in the realignment. But like Vatech, Miami, Boston College, Pitt, Syracuse, those Big East schools that dipped out and basically killed Big East football for the ACC. So you, we've seen the and that was considered a, a, a quote unquote power conference. And, and those are heavy quotes on yeah, the, the difference. The difference is, is those power conferences 15 or 20 years ago weren't getting contracts for billions of dollars. Right. And the contracts at a billion dollars mean that you're going to have to have television rights that that justify those sorts of things. So if you look at like um, where the NBA is going pretty soon, probably they're going to expand into Seattle and, and Las Vegas is probably where they're going to expand. So a UNLV is actually a team that I would look at and go, hmm, that'd be attractive to me if I was a, if I was a Big Ten, um, if I was in charge of the Big Ten, because I go, I get the Las Vegas market. We'll call the UN, UNLV Rutgers game the Will Miles Bowl. <laughs> well, again, I think all you got to look at is what are the cities that have professional football, basketball, hockey, and baseball? And if those four teams have a university that feeds into that city, then that's who you want. And if they've got some history in college football, then great. But Tallahassee, Florida is not a space that I look at and go, oh, what an attractive television market. Now, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But the product is far superior in Tallahassee than it is in many of these other locations you're talking about. That may about. be true. but In but terms again, of, I th- of a football product. Right, but and- I think you're looking at it from a short-sighted perspective, which is that, yes, Florida State has a history, but – 
these leagues are going to be able to rely on the Gators and and the Crimson Tide and the Auburn Tigers and Ohio State Buckeyes for history. They're not selling history. They're selling eyeballs. And so if you and need for, to – Florida State would bring eyeballs more than a UNLV – Maybe, but but not necessarily long term because you need places where, again, like who are the people who are going to like, yes, Florida State, Florida would bring a lot of eyeballs to us. And there's a lot of from us. And there's a lot of history. FSU, LSU to open the season and FSU. I mean, come on, man. You'd be a little that's no, I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that long term. And again, I think you have to look at this long term, long term, UNLV will end up being a recruiting dynamo in a top 40 league, right? They'll beat a team that gets left out pretty easily. Like if you get the opportunity to play when this turns into 40 teams that are fighting for the national championship, you don't even have to go to school. And then you've got lower divisions that play football that, that get that have gotten left out of the top 40 or again, 45, whatever that is. I think Rutgers becomes a much more appealing option than Virginia tech who gets left out or than Virginia who gets left out or whoever gets left out of that top 40. Your recruits are going to look at it and say, I want to at least have a chance to play for a national championship. And then what's going to happen is you're going to have collective bargaining, which means you start bringing in salary cap structures and all those other things, which is going to turn it into like the NFL where the only team that sucks continuously is Jacksonville. And so, you know, yeah, that's great that you've got teams that are just, awful year after year after year after year but that rarely happens and then you get a guy like trevor lawrence and hopefully for you for your sanity jacksonville can turn it around but it's going to turn into much this is why i liked what happened at vanderbilt a couple years ago where they brought in barton simmons as a general manager to help out clark lee because i think that what's going to happen is these big time college programs are going to turn much more like nfl programs where the general manager might be more important than the head coach and i think you can make a case that bill belichick for all that he does on the field the fact that he's also the general manager of that team has a lot to do with the success that they've had. Not just, not just, you know, that, that some of his trading down strategies and manipulating of the salary cap and getting rid of guys before they become too expensive and all those sorts of things have had a major impact on the Patriots ability to be successful. Now, obviously it helps to have Tom Brady and in the, in the college ranks, you're going to have turnover, right? Every four years or so, um, depending upon how long these guys actually stay. But look, in the next five years, no, I don't think UNLV is going to be an attractive place or an attractive game that everybody like pencils on their calendar. But I think if I'm looking 15, 20 years out, I'm looking at the places where people are moving. I'm looking at the places that have multiple professional sports, and I'm looking at places where the university feeds into those major cities. So Clemson's really close to Charlotte. They're a way more attractive property to me than some than than a even a team with better. Like if you told me UNC Charlotte was available, I might be like, huh, like it's a team in Charlotte. That's interesting. But by that logic, you would say the Miami Hurricanes have the the biggest uh, draw there. It, no, for, for college football. No, in, not in at all. Florida, not at cool. all. Because, because Miami is not filled with people who went to the university of Miami. Miami is a small private school with a relatively yeah. small alumni base that isn't just pumping people into Miami. In fact, I think you could make the case. There's probably more Gator grads in Miami than there are hurricane grads just because of the size and the breadth of the school. And, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying that if you've got, so same thing for Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia is by far the biggest city. Pittsburgh is the second biggest city. Penn State is the program that you would want for television reasons because Penn State fills the entire state with alumni. 
And so the alumni network for Penn State is extraordinarily large. So if you're looking for eyeballs and you want Northeast and you want the Pennsylvania area, you would go with Penn State. You wouldn't go get Drexel or Temple or or one of the teams that's in the middle of Philadelphia, even though Philadelphia is the most densely populated place. You'd find the team that right, has so alumni you, that filter you in. Want a school that produces a lot of eyeballs for football, even if they play in Tallahassee versus Las Vegas, for example. <laughs> but they don't produce enough eyeballs. Oh man, uh, underestimating them. But I I hate that you put me in position to defend Florida State, man. It's it's not natural. I don't enjoy it. But uh, you know, that's a that's an outlandish statement there. I, I look, I do think this is going in a direction that I think we've been heading in this direction to some extent. Did I ever want to see the day of these twenty conference behemoths? I, I know you've talked about that before, Will, and to me. I would have thought that the Pac-12, to me, it's a total stunner that this conference disintegrated this fast because you were these, they were in position. They were the aggressor a decade and a half ago. So if you feel bad for the Pac-12 collapsing, just remember they were trying to take out the legs of the Big 12 about a decade and a half ago. So what goes around comes around to some extent uh, there, Will, but I think we'll see some return to regionality. The other thing I don't like is I, I feel like Texas and Texas A&M, they just wasted a decade of what is a great in-state rivalry by being stubborn. So all these schools like Washington State, Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, there's no reason they can't keep playing. I think they should keep playing. Uh, I think it's if you really care about what's good for, for those fan bases, I, I think they should absolutely continue those games. But it's also a temporary measure. I do think there will be a day where Washington State and Oregon State and those schools get revisited. I don't think Virginia Tech will be left out in the cold permanently. I think in the, there'll be more rounds of this to come, but it looks like we're settling in on this odd structure for the next few years at least. So we'll, we'll see how things go, Will. We'll see. I, I think you're wrong. I've been beating the drum that it's going to be two super conferences sort of like the AFC and the NFC for a couple of years now. And uh, I, I think, you know, you mentioned well, I earlier. I think we're definitely heading there at this point. Yeah, well, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that whenever somebody says it's not about the money, that it's about the money or whenever, whatever you said, like whenever they say it's about the kids, it's not about the kids. It's about the money and follow the money, follow what the professional leagues have done because college football is becoming professional. And NIL was a part of that. But the reality is, is NIL is a small, small, small portion of the overall revenue that's being generated. And if you don't think the lawyers see that, um, you're, you're crazy. And so, you know, that's what's going to happen is it's going to expand. Yeah, I, I and there will be new games and new rivalries. One, If you explain college football to someone who doesn't know college football, the concept of like Florida and Texas never playing except for like one time in World War II, that's insane. It's awesome mm -hmm. that some of these schools are finally going. The, the regionality was cool in some respects, but it's also cool that some of these bigger brands are going to start interacting and you're going to see, I think the, these schools that, especially out West, are going to really benefit from, from the extra exposure. But is anyone going to complain about Oregon going into Ann Arbor to play a night game at Michigan in the middle of October? I don't think so. So I, I do just think the Oregon state people or the, just the Oregon state, <laughs> Washington state people for now, for now they might, but they, 
keep keep plugging away. Hey, why is Oregon and State Washington State? Let's talk about the cold hard truth of this. Why is Oregon State and Washington State not in the driver's seat in these conversations? Well, I don't know. Feel free of your hundred years of football history. Feel free to have more than eight decent seasons on your resume. Take it a little more serious going to the Phil Knight exists. Well, yeah, Oregon State, they're investing. They're starting to have a better program. I think we saw it in the Las Vegas Bowl from a Florida perspective. Jonathan Smith's running a good program. They just did big renovations to Riser Stadium out there at Oregon State. I definitely think that if they keep going the right directions, you've seen schools come out of the Mountain West into the Power Five. We've seen this with Utah and other things. These schools aren't dead. These programs aren't dead. They might be on a bit of a hiatus. BYU has been independent for about a decade. They're back. They're, they're in the Power Five. They actually were never in a Power Five conference. So they've elevated their status. So you dedicate yourself to building a good football program. You can absolutely elevate your status. That's the cool part about all this realignment. But I don't think any of the positive aspects get covered enough. And it's just the the woe is the woe is me on everything's different and everything else. And I just wanted to point some of that out. So I, I just look forward to the Oregon state being a lacrosse powerhouse and you know, that that's, what's going to happen is they're going to start allocating resources to non-revenue sports in a way that, in a way that makes sense because the mausoleums that have been built for some of these conferences where half the conference has been carried right. by the big boys in those conferences that's what I'm saying. is, is, is over, right? Like the right. Ohio States and Michigan's of the world, and the USC's and UCLA's and Oregon's well, board not said, UCLA. let's not throw it. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, they're in Los Angeles. They bring eyeballs. Sure. So, you know, those, those programs have said, why should I subsidize Washington state and Oregon state and, Stanford right. and that sort of stuff. And they're just not going to do it anymore. You don't like because- it. Do something about it. And that's why I say you have the opportunity. Look at TCU. TCU was kicked out of the big boys club. They had to go play. They had to go eat it for a while. They built themselves back up. They're playing for a national title as a big 12 member last year. So I, it it's going to, it's going to be harder to build into this once this gets settled. Um, it just will be, um, you know, and maybe Drinkwitz needs to watch out. Cause if they adopt like the EPL, like relegory relegation strategy, where like you take the bottom five and kick them out and invite five new programs in every year or, or something like that, then Missouri might be on the chopping block every year. So maybe that's why he thinks they should be thinking about SEC the kids. Fan who wouldn't kick Missouri out tomorrow <laughs> if we had the choice. Let's be real. I, nobody give gets me UNLV. They're out. Missouri. Yeah, you know, I try to be respectful. I like to think that I watch a lot of the national scene on college football, but I don't know, man. Drink that. Drinkwitz just doesn't have a clue sometimes with some of this stuff, man. It drives me crazy. All right. Well, but, if you held on for this long, you are really fans of us. So we appreciate it, given that we went 30 minutes on conference realignment talking about UNLV and Rutgers um, in Oregon State and Washington State. So I want to be uh, clear. Will talked about UNLV and Rutgers. Yeah, I you talked about Washington State and Oregon it. State. Yeah. I, I, but that's not UNLV and Rutgers. It's no, because you're wrong. Yeah, right. Okay. You, I'll let you – you die on the Rutgers and you on LV Hill. I'll let you have that one, man. All right. Thanks, for everybody, for joining another episode of Stand Up and Holler. We'll be back next week. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Dudson. Have a great week, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction. Or you can go to patreon.com slash read and reaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.